Well, some things are just meant to be together, like church and announcements. What about peanut butter and jelly? Hamburgers and french fries? Batman and Robin, at least it used to be that way. Batman's been doing kind of this solo gig the last number of movies that we've watched him. But, you know, in the old days, Batman went nowhere without Robin. SpongeBob and Patrick. Biscuits and gravy. Tom and Jerry. R2-D2 and C-3PO. Macaroni and cheese. Cereal and milk. Shaggy and Scooby. And the list goes on. We're going to talk about some other things that are also meant to be together in the Bible study today as we get into it further along. We're continuing a study through the letter of 1 Peter, and in the section that we have been in for the past couple of weeks, which began in chapter 1, verse 13, Peter tells us, as believers, to pursue a holy life because we are God's children, and to pursue a holy life not to earn salvation, but because we have salvation. Peter continues along that same train of thought again in the verses we'll be looking at today, but he now talks about the day-to-day living out of a holy life, which can be summed up with a single word, love. This is an important idea for us to take hold of. Love is the primary expression of genuine holiness in a person's life. I'll say that again. Love is the primary expression of genuine holiness in a person's life. Now that may sound a bit odd to the person who thinks of holiness as a list of do's and don'ts and religious rituals and attitudes, but as we've noted before, that is not genuine holiness. That is re religious legalism, which God actually finds uglier and more repulsive than any of us do. Genuine holiness is something beautiful. It's the character and the nature of Jesus Christ. And the one quality that sums up his nature more than any other is love. Remember, Jesus himself taught that the two greatest commandments are to love God and to love others. Matthew 22, 36. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And Jesus replied, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment, and the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. Paul taught this same thing too. In 1 Corinthians 13, he made the point that a person can do all kinds of religious activities and apparent selfless acts, but if we don't have love, then it's as nothing at all. 1 Corinthians 13, 1, he said, If I speak in the tongues of men or of angels but do not have love, I'm only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, And if I have a faith that can move mountains, but don't have love, I'm nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I may boast, but don't have love, I gain nothing. John, he also taught the same essential idea. John, he breaks it down into very simple terms when he writes in 1 John 3.23. And this is his command, to believe in the name of his son Jesus Christ and to love one another as he commanded us. John says there are basically two commands of God that we need to concern ourselves with. One, believe in Jesus, and two, love each other. 
All of the other commandments are contained in these two. I love verses like this that take all of the advice and the direction and the do's and the don'ts of life and boils them all down to two simple things. Believe in Jesus and love each other. That's the kind of thing that you and I can remember. Well, Peter, he gives as the motivation for us living this life of love, this holy life, the incredible goodness of God that has been extended to us. He has given us a new life. We've been born again, and this new life in us is imperishable, coming through the living and enduring Word of God. Well, that's the summary of what we're looking at today. So let's flip over to chapter 1, beginning in verse 22. Peter writes, Now that you have purified yourselves by obeying the truth, so that you have sincere love for each other, love one another deeply from the heart. Now that you have purified yourselves by obeying the truth. Peter is basically summing up what he has already been writing, saying, now that you have salvation through faith in Jesus Christ, so that you have sincere love for each other. The Greek word translated love for each other is Philadelphia, which refers to brotherly affection. You might remember that one of the nicknames of the city of Philadelphia is the city of brotherly love. And now you know where that comes from because Philadelphia is the Greek word referring to brotherly love. When we come to faith in Christ and are born again, one of the things that springs up in us as part of that new life is a love for our brothers and sisters in Christ. Before I became a follower of Jesus, the last people in the world I wanted to be around was a bunch of Christians. I mean, I didn't like church people at all. I didn't like their company. I didn't like their point of view on life. I didn't have anything in common with them. And I wasn't really interested in having anything in common with them. When the new life of Christ, though, started to grow in me, I noticed that I had a newfound affinity toward other Jesus followers. Church people became immediately much more tolerable for me to be around. In fact, my brothers and sisters in Christ began to be my favorite people to be around and spend time with. I had something in common with these people at the deepest part of my life. I had a newfound love for my brothers and sisters in Christ. I began to experience firsthand being part of the family of God. Well, Peter says, here he goes, he goes, now that you have purified yourselves by obeying the truth so that you have sincere love for each other, love one another deeply from the heart. He says, love one another deeply from the heart. Peter, he uses a different word here than he does uh, just before that. He used Philadelphia before, but now this word is agape. He uses the word agape, which is that word that refers to God's love for us. It's the deeper fuller love that doesn't simply care for another person because we like that person or recognize some benefit to ourselves in that person. Agape is the highest form of love. It's a selfless love. It's a love that is an act of the will rather than an emotional response. It is a love that doesn't simply recognize value in the one it's loving, but creates value in the one that it chooses to love. Peter is telling us that because we are Christians, Jesus followers, 
we should seek to have and to practice this highest form of love for others. We have an affection for our brothers and sisters in Christ as members of God's family, and that's good. But we want to take our love further than merely brotherly affection. We want to practice this same kind of love that Jesus has, agape. Love that's not simply a response, but a love that initiates, reaches out, makes the first move, bridges the divide, extends the hand first, takes the risk, is willing to be inconvenienced and troubled and even hurt for the sake of others. Love, agape, one another deeply from the heart. He says, the Greek word translated deeply, it means at full strength, in an all-out manner, fervently, intensely, earnestly, with the pedal to the metal, holding nothing back. That kind of love he's talking about. In the case of Jesus, that meant loving us to the point of giving his very life for us. That was loving us deeply says, from the heart. And that's an expression meaning purely, truly, honestly, with right motive. To love in the same way that Jesus loves is the truest expression of holiness that we can have in our life. Jesus said that one of the distinguishing marks of his followers would be their love for one another. Remember John 13, 34, he said, A new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Jesus' followers without love are an aberration. There's something seriously wrong. It's like biscuits without gravy. It's like macaroni without cheese. It's like shaggy without scooby. Like cereal without milk. You get the idea. It's something that should not be. John said it this way. In 1 John 4.19, we love because he first loved us. Whoever claims to love God yet hates a brother or sister is a liar. For whoever does not love their brother and sister whom they have seen cannot love God whom they have not seen. And he has given us his command, anyone who loves God must also love their brother and sister. Loving people is risky business though, isn't it? It takes courage. It takes a tremendous amount of trust in the Lord. That selfless, dangerous, risk-taking, put-yourself-out-there kind of love that the Lord is calling us to, it's scary. We withhold our love from people because we don't want to be hurt or taken advantage of. But you know, those kinds of concerns are never mentioned as legitimate excuses by the Lord, for withholding our love from others. He wants us to love dangerously, so to speak, not knowing if our love will ever be reciprocated by others we are giving it to or not. Remember, see, we're not talking about a romantic kind of love here. We are talking about a serving love, a sacrificing love, a giving love, a love that gives itself away, a love that risks, a love that takes the dangerous route. Verse 23, Peter continues here, he says, For you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and enduring word of God. So Peter, he now gives us motivation 
for living this life of dangerous, selfless love. We love one another deeply from the heart because we have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable seed through the living and enduring Word of God. The new life we have in Christ is an imperishable life, an eternal life, an immortal life, which has come through the Word of God, it tells us. Christian, I want you to know that the new life that Christ has begun in you, it's a vigorous life which can't be extinguished. It's growing in you and it's going to continue to grow in you. You ask me how I know that because that life in you comes through the word of God, which is described as living and enduring. That's the kind of life that's in you. It's living and enduring. What great words for describing the Word of God. The Word of God is living. It's alive. It's life-producing. It's strong and powerful and full of energy. Isaiah 55.10 says, As the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return to it without watering the earth and making it bud and flourish, so that it yields seed for the sower and bread for the eater, so is my word that goes out from my mouth. It will not return to me empty, but will accomplish what I desire and achieve the purpose for which I sent it. That's God that was talking there, by the way. Hebrews 4.12 says, For the word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to the dividing of soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. The Word of God is living. And it says the Word of God is enduring. It lasts forever. It is indestructible. It is permanent. It continues to exist forever and ever. Peter, he's going to provide commentary on this attribute of the Word of God in these next two verses, which is a quotation from Isaiah 40, 6 through 8. In 24, he says, For all people are like grass, and all their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord endures forever. And this is the word that was preached to you. The frail, temporary nature of humanity and its achievements, its glory, as Peter says here, is contrasted with the enduring, eternal, imperishable Word of God by comparing humanity and its glory with grass and flowers. Think about that. Grass, the most common vegetation on the planet. If a particular place on this globe can sustain the growth of vegetation, then the one plant that will grow is usually grass of some kind. It's commonplace. It's everywhere. It's pedestrian. It's insignificant. No one pays any attention to it. And at the same time, grass is heavily dependent upon other things to sustain its life. Without the sun and water, it withers and dies quickly. Well, humanity is like grass, superficial, weak, dependent. It says, we're like flowers. Flowers, they're beautiful, but so short-lived. A blossom appears and reveals her glory for a few short moments and then dries up and falls to the ground. 
Humanity is like the flower, frail and short-lived. In contrast to that, the Word of God is living and enduring. And in verse 25, it is forever. Look at the very last sentence of chapter of the chapter, verse 25, it says, and this is the word that was preached to you. This living, life-producing, life-transforming, powerful, vigorous, enduring, indestructible, immortal word of God is what was proclaimed to us in which we believe and which has given us life and enables us to love like Jesus. It's interesting to connect what Peter has written here with what Paul and John have written in Colossians. For example, Paul tells us that the Christ, who is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation, the one who created all things and for whom all things were created, the one who is before all things, the one who holds all things together, the one who is the head of the church, the one who has the supremacy over all things in existence, is the same Christ who is in you. Think about that. And then John, in the opening words of his gospel, in John 1.1, we learn that Jesus Christ is the divine Logos, the Word of God who has always existed, now come in human flesh. And here, in Peter's letter, we learn that the imperishable, life-producing seed, which is in us, is this same Word of God, the Christ. That's who's in you, Christian. Well, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 1, he says, Therefore, rid yourselves of all malice and all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander of every kind. Therefore, remember, we always want to know what the therefore is therefore. He's saying, taking all of this into account that I have just written to you, Rid yourselves, then, of all of this other stuff. Malice, evil intent, desire to injure, deceit, guile, trickery, falsehood, hypocrisy, insincerity, play-acting, showing an untrue self, envy, being jealous of another's success or blessing, and slander, talk that's intended to harm another person's reputation or status or gossip, rumor spreading. These things are opposites of love. They work against love. They get in the way of love. They prevent love. They destroy love. They are anti-love. Since love or sincere love from the heart, as described in verses 22 and 23 of chapter 1 above, they cannot have these things present instead of practicing these things that work against this new life that God is growing in us, we want to do what is said in the next verses. In verse 2 and 3, Peter writes, Instead of that, like newborn babies, crave pure spiritual milk 
so that by it you may grow up in your salvation, now that you have tasted that the Lord is good. In the same way that a newborn baby craves its mother's milk, Peter tells us to crave the Word of God. That word translated crave, it means an intense, hungering, consuming desire. Think about a newborn baby. When it's time to eat, a newborn baby lets you know it. They can't be talked out of it. They won't accept any substitutes. They're not willing to wait until a more convenient time for you. And if you don't respond quickly enough, you will have a crying storm of frightening proportions on your hands. That is what the word crave means. Now I want to clarify to prevent misunderstanding here. Peter's analogy here does not have any connection with the similar sounding analogy that's found in Hebrews chapter 5, verses 12 and 13, where milk in that passage is compared to the elementary teachings of the Christian faith versus the solid food, which is compared to the mature teachings. That's not what Peter's meaning is here at all. Milk here is being compared with the Word of God as something that is nourishing and desirable for all believers, no matter if you're old or young, immature, mature, whatever. We all need that milk. There's nothing like nourishing milk for a newborn baby, and there is nothing like the nourishing milk of the Word of God for us as Christians. There are many things that we can do to aid our spiritual growth in Christ, but there is one thing that is essential for our growth, a steady intake of the pure spiritual milk of the Lord, the Word of God. It is food for our soul. It's life-producing. It invigorates our spiritual life. It strengthens our life in Christ. There's something mysteriously powerful about the effect that the Word of God has on the Jesus follower's life, isn't there? When we drink it in steadily, we grow. When we neglect it, we become spiritually anemic. We become weak and we lack energy in our spiritual life. Well, how do we acquire a craving for the Word of God? Well, first, the Holy Spirit produces a craving in our life for the Word of God in the same way that a baby naturally craves milk. Before I came to faith in Christ and began following Him with my life, I would pick up the Bible once in a while and read a bit of it here and there. It all seemed dry and meaningless and irrelevant to me. I mean, I just like didn't get it, if you understand what I'm saying. But when I came to faith in Christ, when I was born again, when his new life began to grow in me, the Bible came to life for me in a whole different kind of way. When I read it, I truly gained nourishment for my soul from it. I didn't have to work at liking the Bible. I just did. I had a hunger for it. One of the marks of someone who has truly come to faith in Christ is a hunger for the Word of God. It's a natural craving that takes place in a person who comes to faith in Christ and is truly born again. Now over time, though, a believer's hunger for the Word of God, it can wane and diminish at times. And when that happens, we need to take 
the teaching that Peter is giving us here to heart when he says, now that you have tasted that the Lord is good. We need to remind ourselves of how good the Lord is. And it will draw us back to his pure spiritual milk for nourishment. When we let ourselves get pulled away from the Lord and we begin trying to feed our spirit on other things besides the Word of God, we can forget what we've left behind. Switching out the Word of God for other things is like trading a steak dinner for a bag of Cheetos. You can't live on Cheetos for very long and remain healthy. You will die if all you eat is Cheetos. Cheetos are easy to consume, though, aren't they? I mean, you just open the bag, stick your hand in, eat. No thought, no work, easy peasy, all the way around. But easy is not an indication of their value or lack of it. A nutritious meal, in contrast, it takes some effort to prepare and to consume. The benefit to our body, though, is hugely different. It makes the effort, the effort worth it, doesn't it? Christian, we need to get back to the Word of God. Drop whatever that thing is that you have been trying to feed yourself on and start taking in the pure spiritual milk of God's Word again. Your spiritual life will begin to thrive again if you will commit yourself to it. And you will echo what the psalmist said in 119.103 when he said, How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. We mentioned at the beginning of the Bible study some things that are meant to be together. Peanut butter and jelly, hamburgers and french fries, Spongebob and Patrick, biscuits and gravy, macaroni and cheese, cereal and milk, Shaggy and Scooby. A Christian and the Word of God are also meant to be together in the same way. A Christian and the Word of God, they go together. They belong together. Christian, we need to regularly consume the Word of God for the new life to grow in us. In closing, the last words of verse 3 are a partial quotation from Psalm 34, verse 8, which is an invitation to come to the Lord and put our trust in Him. And I thought uh, I would like to read some of these verses from that psalm in closing today in Psalm 34, beginning in verse 8. It says, Taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the one who takes refuge in Him. Fear the Lord, you holy people, for those who fear Him lack nothing. The lions may grow weary, may, the lions may grow weak and hungry, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Come, my children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. Whoever of you loves life and desires to see many good days, keep your tongue from evil and your lips from telling lies. Turn from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. The eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are attentive to their cry. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil to blot out their name from the earth. The righteous cry out and the Lord hears them. He delivers them from all their troubles. The Lord is close to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. The righteous person may have many troubles, but the Lord delivers him from them all. 
Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. It is spiritual milk that nourishes us. And Lord, we thank you for the call that you've given us today to come back to your word and begin to consume it, to drink it in. And I pray, God, that we would all today take that challenge to heart and we would renew our commitment, our craving, our desire for your word. We would seek you through it, Lord. We ask that you would make that so in us today. In Jesus' name, amen.